Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time? Father, thank you for once again bringing us here together as a family. Thank you for the testimony of your people and how you are building your body, the church. Thank you for those whom you are saving and even bringing here from other places that are According to your sovereign hand and your plan to build this church, Lord, we thank you for their giftedness. We thank you for how they will be used here. We trust as best we can in evaluating their spiritual condition that they are saved. And we we are grateful that you have gifted us with them. And so we pray that this body would be enriched by all of that. We thank, we're thankful that as a body we can study your word together and we can be uh, challenged, we can be exhorted, we can be encouraged, we can be convicted, and we can know you as we ought. So tonight, please do that as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin our study of the word of God tonight by returning in our Bibles to our study of the gospel of John. John's gospel, it's... um, Something we return to from time to time, it seems. Our evening service uh, from time to time is canceled for whatever reason. And uh, as we've been a few weeks off of this, we're returning again to John. And we find ourselves again dealing with the final hours of the physical life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire section of John's gospel of his final night or the final week really begins in chapter 12, but in chapter 13, it really starts this final section that runs through verse 30 of chapter 19, which really is the the final night and the ensuing arrest and his crucifixion. But for our specific study tonight, we'll return to the night before his crucifixion, the night before he goes to the cross when Christ is with his closest of disciples and followers, and he's giving them their final instructions. He's not just informing them uh, again concerning what is about to take place, although he has done that in the past and he will do that again, but more importantly, how they ought to be responding to it in their own lives. We left off last time in the first six verses of John chapter 14, and I want to return there again tonight and just begin by reading them for us. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now I want to begin our time tonight by asking a question for all of us to be thinking about in our own mind. It's somewhat of an ambiguous question really for us as Christians because 
as I begin to think about it, the answer for us who have faith in Jesus Christ, the answer for us as believers will and should always be yes to this question. But I want us to think about it, not necessarily as a simple yes, but by way of degree that it might take place in your life. And really what we're going to talk about piggybacks a little bit on what we spoke about even this morning. The question is this, have you ever had your faith tested? Have you ever had your faith tested? Of course, for us as Christians, the obvious answer would be yes. But like I said, I I don't want us to just think about saying yes in the simple way. I want us to, to think more of in what degree has your faith been tested? And I don't mean by asking that, that we answer yes simply because we've gone through difficulties in life. All of us go through difficulties. Each of us from time to time have to deal with life's problems. Life this side of glory, life in this temporal place, life on earth is a troublesome place. And I do not believe that all of those necessarily are always tests of faith. Sometimes they're just simple consequences of the realities of life. But for some... It may be a test of faith, and for most, I believe they're just what I said. They're difficulties that we have to deal with in life, but they do not necessarily mean they're tests of faith. So when I'm speaking about a test of faith, I mean, have you ever been at the place in your Christian life? through the circumstances that are taking place, through the circumstances that God has you in, that your very trust in Jesus Christ, that your very trust in God Himself is being put on the line. Have you ever been at the place that if you did not wholly and fully believe in the very essence and quality of God, and all that He is for life, you would have at that very moment abandoned the very things that you say you believe. Have you ever been there? The crossroads of temptation where your faith is put on the line? Truly? Where the rubber meets the road in your Christian life? Follow God means the narrow path. It means the way of the unknowns. It means the way of potential difficulty. And to not trust Christ, to not trust God in that moment means a wide path of potential ease, a wide path whereby whatever appears to be might be the things that will happen. I hope you understand what I'm trying to ask. As you evaluate your life, have you been there before? And more importantly, what was it that sustained you in those times? What was it that kept you in that time? How did you, if you did, how did you live confidently through that situation even though you were facing a time that was very, very difficult? This is just the kind of situation that the disciples are about to be in. They are about to be 
dead in the middle of a moment, dead in the middle of a time, dead in the circumstances of life when their faith is going to be truly tested. Jesus is laying out for them clear instructions, clear pathway for maintaining steadfast faith in the midst of those very moments when they come face to face with the most difficult moments of the Christian life. When their faith is tested at the utmost. Jesus wants them to be able to to handle that, to get through those moments. And by way of implication, we would be really remiss in our study tonight if we went out without learning the same lesson from the Lord for us. This is truly about how you and I can continually live by steadfast faith throughout life's difficulties. How do we continue in steadfast faith when there's betrayal in life? When someone so close to us, someone who is right there in relationship with us, betrays that very relationship. How do we continue in steadfast faith then when God allows that in our life? How do we live by means of steadfast faith when we see weakness in leaders? When we see weakness in those whom we are to be following? Remember, Peter was just told that he's going to deny Christ. This was unthinkable. Deny Christ, Peter? I mean, how do we continue to trust when weakness is seen like that? How do we remain steadfast in trust when we don't see the end of the road? When all of the answers aren't given? You see, it's during those spiritual forks in the road that our faith is truly tested. And Christ wants us to know just how to remain steadfast through it all. I was thinking about this this week in light of uh, tonight when we were talking about this whole issue of what to tell a member or these potential members of our church. And and, and uh, one of you began to speak about the importance of commitment, the reality of commitment. We talked about that pretty extensively in our membership class, Randy and I both emphasizing that point. And I was thinking about that reality of the first century church. The issue of commitment wasn't something you took lightly. Uh, If you professed to believe upon Jesus Christ, what was known then as the way in a derogatory term, if you professed faith in Jesus Christ, it could cost you your very life. It was a very serious thing. There was no lackadaisical reality to the membership that you might have joined with this group of people who followed Jesus. It could have cost you your life. It very often would have cost you your livelihood. Your family would have thrown you out. We see that oftentimes even in Middle Eastern countries today. When someone comes to know Jesus Christ, their family disowns them immediately. We, we were talking about this because of the ease at which it seems to be, at least in Western evangelicalism, to go from one church to another church without seemingly any kind of issue. I think uh, last week, maybe Debbie, or the week before, Debbie and I were talking in the office about this very issue and, and the, the issue of the third century church and the 
what, what, what you had to go through in order to be a member even in the third century church, which was a, a whole year-long process by which you had to be catechized. You had to go through all of these classes about what you believe and, and really uh, come under the indoctrination of the teaching of that church for a year before you could even enter certain parts of the church. You had There was a whole ceremony. You could come into certain parts of the church, but you really weren't part of the, the full membership of the church until you had gone through that that whole membership process. There was a sense of cost. You didn't just so easily back out of that. It seems today it's so easy. People will even stand here in the front of our church and say, I will, I will, I will, I will. And then the next next thing you know, they're no longer attending here. They're attending some other church. They've forgotten their commitment. They've forgotten what they've committed to. And they've left. I don't know what all that has to do with what I'm teaching tonight, but it was on my heart. I think it's just truly a test of faith, really. Uh, Maybe that's what's tying it together in my own mind, a test of faith. Christ wants us to know just how to remain steadfast in those moments, steadfast in those times when we're rubbing up against each other and, and, hey, listen, some issue takes place. How do we remain steadfast in and through it all in those tough times? And by way of our thinking in in, in the practical sense, like we were talking about this morning, this idea of practicing holiness, in in a way of our practical life, what are we being taught, what, what we're hearing about Jesus Christ, what we're hearing Jesus say, really is, is He saying you have to first exercise your mind. You have to exercise your thinking because that leads to practice. We are not talking about mental gymnastics. We're not talking about the power of positive thinking as some people have put out there over the years. This isn't the little engine that could kind of philosophy. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not what it is. What Christ is teaching here is no different than the Apostle Paul who continually relayed to the churches to whom he preached what even one of you testified to tonight, that principle of put off and put on. Put off the old self, put on the new self. The book of Ephesians, Paul is addressing how you can consistently be living the Christian life before the world. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, those very confrontive words about life. Chapter 4, verse 17 and following. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in that way. If indeed you have heard of Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have your mind renewed. Have your thinking renewed because from your thinking flows life. Put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see that? 
You can't live the new life walking around with this sinfulness going on. Why? Because the new self is created in the likeness of God, which is righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 14. Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus and to the other churches that he wrote, listen, if you're going to live a confident Christian life before the world, if you're going to live out your faith, if you're going to be steadfast in living out your faith, then it begins with this principle of putting off and putting on, which is the outworking of the exercise that begins in your mind. Your thinking, your understanding, renewing your mind. We could say it another way. It's the exercise of driving the very vehicle of our professed belief. You know what I'm saying? It's the exercise of driving the very vehicle of our professed belief. In other words, not to exercise faith. The faith that we have is like sitting in a car that has all that we need to go from point A to point B and never putting it in gear. It's exactly where Jesus starts with the disciples. That's where we have to start in our life. Jesus says to them, I mentioned this last time, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, stop letting your hearts be stirred up by this circumstance that you now see us about to go into. Stop letting yourself get all stirred up about what you see happening. To allow that to take place in your life is to succumb to the flesh. To allow yourself to be all stirred up about the circumstance at hand is to allow yourself to to follow after the desires of the flesh, to focus on the temporal rather than the eternal. Says, look, I know these things are difficult. I know these things that we go through are going to be hard and they're going to be hard for you to understand. And what makes it even more difficult is when you succumb in your humanness and you actually worry about it. Do not let your heart be troubled. You understand he doesn't say hearts. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He's not talking to them necessarily as a collective group, even though he's talking to them as a collective group. He's talking to them each and individually. Don't let your heart be troubled. You know what that says to me? Christian obedience, Christian practice, Christian exercise of steadfast faith is an individual practice. Your faith can be encouraged by others, but you must be steadfast in faith. It isn't a faithful group that's going to get you through. You have to be steadfast in faith. Don't let your heart be troubled. The place of steadfast faith begins when we are willing to put off the old self the part of us that naturally responds to the circumstances of life in sinful ways, in the words of Paul this morning, our desires get used by sin that wants to rule. They become these strong desires. And so we need to start by putting off the old self. 
and be renewed in the spirit of our mind and exercise our new self. People say, but I just can't do that. I can't do that. I, 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 I hear this on a regular basis. I heard it this week as I was talking to an individual on the phone, not someone from our church, but an individual on the phone who says this on a regular basis. I can't do that. I'm just tired. Tired. My answer to that, or God's answer to that, or Jesus' answer to that is, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it because as a child of God, you have not only been given the mind of God, but you have living in you the Spirit of God to actually empower you to carry out what is being required of you. So you can do it. Jesus, seeing the hearts of the disciples with great comfort, great compassion, says to them, stop exercising distrust and exercise trust. Stop exercising distrust, exercise trust. How do we do that? How do we exercise trust? Well, Jesus tells us, First of all, we exercise that trust when we trust in Christ's deity. Trust in Christ's deity. I I told you this last time. We we listed that there for us last time. But notice what he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is telling those who were with him that night, listen, men, listen, you who who say you believe in me, who are following me, you don't see God the Father and yet you trust Him. In fact, you've never seen God the Father. You've heard testimony about God the Father, but you've never seen God the Father in the way that you think you need to see Him. You don't see God the Father. You trust Him so too in the same way, even though I'm going away for a time and you won't see me, you can and you must trust me in that same way. Jesus Christ is professing His deity. You believe in God? Believe also in Me. This isn't saving faith that He's talking about. He's not, saving, he's not saying, hey, listen, you still need to be saved. You'll read some commentators who try to say that. That's not what He's talking about here. This isn't saving faith. Saving faith for sure is essential for spiritual living. You cannot live what Jesus Christ is saying without being saved. But the faith that is necessary for confidence in the face of trouble is the exercise of trust in action in the very one whom we trust to believe. It's faith in action because we believe in Jesus Christ. Because we believe who He is. In other words, it's the, it's the constant reminder to ourselves as we preach to ourselves and remind ourselves all the way in the process that Christ is who He said He is and He has proved Himself to be who He said He is. And because of that, we can act upon that very character. We can actually do what He is requiring and saying here in John 14, 1, because He is God. So 
This isn't self-brainwashing. This is visible action. Visible faith. This is faith lived out in practical ways on the basis of what and in whom we say we believe. Jesus says you believe in God. Believe also in me. Christ is God. The second is this. The exercise of faith in practical ways in the face of temptation to be faithless is accomplished, number two, by trusting in His promise. Trusting in His promise. We trust that He's deity, that He's God. Secondly, we trust that He, in His promise. Notice what He says, verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. This is a promise of Jesus Christ. This is a promise of God. Part of the difficulty in this life is that we are so affectionately tied to this world. Sadly. More than we ought to be. This was part of the root cause of the disciples. This was part of why they were struggling with this whole issue. This is part of why they're having a, a crisis moment in their faith. They believe that the time of Jesus Christ, the time of Him coming, was going to be that very time when Christ sets up His physical reign on earth. When, when Christ was going to rule, when the oppression of the day was going to be over, when the oppression of the Romans over them were going to be gone. They, they're worried about what might become of them. What's going to happen now if you're gone? With you gone, we're, we're nothing. And I believe that Jesus is telling them, listen guys, this isn't your home. Listen guys, get your eyes off the temporal. Listen guys, get your eyes off the earth. We have a better place. A place not made with hands of earthly men. A place in the heavens. We know it very well. We've studied it before. Romans, or I mean Hebrews chapter 11. The writer says to Abram, or Abraham, Verse 9, Hebrews 11, verse 9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, get this, was looking. Why did he do that? Why, did, why would Abraham do that? He couldn't see the results of any of that. God had just said, go to a land. He didn't tell him what land was. He, he just said, go. Abraham knew nothing of that. Why would he do that? Because... He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Looking for something earthly. Verse 16, in that same chapter, he goes on to say, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, it says. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has... Prepared a city for them. Jesus is just reiterating that very same thing. Jesus is saying steadfast faith is the practical living out of our knowledge that this is not our home. So trust in the promise. That's what he's saying. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm God. Don't let your hearts be troubled. The promise is as good as gold. It's true. So how do we continue to live out by steadfast faith? We trust in the deity of Christ. We trust who He is. We trust in the promise that He said. 
Third is this. Trust in the integrity of Christ. We trust that He's God. We trust that His promise is true. We trust in His integrity. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now isn't that what makes any promise valid? The integrity of the one who makes it? In other words, no promise is good if the one who makes it is dishonest in making the promise. If the intent of the words is to deceive, then the promise is no good. That's not the case with Christ. The complete validity of the promise is based upon the very character of Jesus Christ, who He is. And that's why He says to the disciples, if it weren't so... I would have told you. He says, listen, you can bank on the promise because of who I am. If if this wasn't true, I would have shared that with you. The reality is I didn't share that with you, and that shows you even more so the trueness of it of the promise. Trust me. Trust my promise because I've always, without fail, told you the truth. That's what he's saying. Trouble comes, difficulty comes, what am I supposed to do? We open the Word of God, we read what God says, trust what He says. Trust what He says. How incomprehensibly different that is from the world. How incomprehensibly different is that from the words we hear from natural man. In fact, even on our own best day, we still lack the ability to carry out perfectly what we've said. But not so with Christ. Christ never did anything or said anything for which someone needed to forgive Him. Do you realize that? Christ never did anything or said anything for which someone could accuse Him And they needed to forgive Him because He committed some kind of sin. Word or deed. His promise is as perfect as He is in His person. Could you imagine the disciples hearing this from Christ? The reassurance that they would have as they're worried and frightened about what the condition is? I mean, some of them, we we don't hear from all of them here. We certainly hear the collective voice from a few of them. But but there had to be some seedbed of of reassurance in the words of Jesus Christ. Rest assured that even though I'm leaving you guys, it will only be for a time. I will come back for you. That is fuel to our faith, isn't it? Rest assured in your trouble that I'm with you. Rest assured that I'm walking with you. Rest assured that that you can stand. 
Rest assured that you can be strong. Rest assured that you can do it. Rest assured that I know even though you're tired, physically tired, emotionally tired, distraught in all kinds of ways because you, the weakness of looking at the temporal world, listen, rest assured that I am with you and I will come for you. That's what ought to give us complete confidence in the midst of difficulty. Jesus is coming back for us. And I believe He didn't tell us when it would be so that we would never let our vigilance for His return wane. Right? Colossians says, set your mind on the things above. Keep seeking the things above. Knowing that He will return at any time propels us by faith to live for Him each and every moment. It ought to. Here's how one author put it, quote, The truth of Jesus' coming is on the lips of Christians all over the world. But today, he said, there seems to be a heightened awareness, a deepening anticipation that Jesus could well come in this generation. In fact, He could come today. But even if He doesn't, we know He will return someday. Unquote. So we can trust in His integrity. We can trust in His deity. We can trust in His promise. There's a fourth. There's a fourth way to exercise steadfast faith. And that is trusting in Christ's directions. Trust in His deity. Trust in His promise. Trust in His integrity. Number four, trust in His direction. Verses 4 through 6. And you know the way where I'm going. Of course, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It seems as though there is utter confusion in the minds of the disciples. They never wanted Jesus to leave in the first place, and now He's telling them that they know the way. I find it interesting that verse 6 gives us somewhat of an outline for this entire section, these entire verses. Don't let your heart be troubled because I'm the way. You believe in God, believe in me. I'm the way. Don't let your heart be troubled because I'm the truth. Trust in my promise. Trust in my integrity. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They never wanted Jesus to leave. Thomas gives the answer. Thomas gives the collective voice, if you will. And I think, I think over the years, Thomas has kind of gotten a bum rap from us. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's how he's affectionately known. Most of the time, it's said with some kind of sense of bewilderment. Bewilderment like, how can you doubt, Thomas? It's so clear as if we wouldn't doubt. That can't really be true, though, can it? 
Because we doubt all the time, don't we? It may not be overt. It's probably more covert. But we doubt, just like Thomas. And we know we doubt because it shows in how we live. We know we doubt the integrity of God. We know we doubt the promises of God. We know we doubt the truth of God. We know we doubt the deity of God because it it is reflected in how we live. Sometimes we're not putting off when we ought to be. We're not putting on when we should be. A difficulty arises in our life and we don't see how we can navigate through it. We begin to worry. How is this going to turn out? can't see the finish from the beginning. And so we begin to try all kinds of human means to deal with it. All kinds of ways of the temporal earth to try to figure it out, move the chess pieces, and try to get them all in the right place when we should just be trusting faithfully, obediently in Christ. That's what Jesus' response is to Thomas and to the rest of us. He doesn't sit down with them and give them a detailed book of directions for how to get where he's going. Jesus says, you know where I'm going. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Jesus doesn't sit down and go, okay, let me give you the road map. Let me pull out my little maps app on my iPad or iPhone and show you exactly. It's only going to take you 32 minutes to get there. No, he says, it's enough that you just know me. That's enough. You don't need to own all the details. You don't need to know all the ins and outs of what's about to happen and what's going to come after that and the timeline of it all. You don't need to know all that. All you need to know is that it's good enough to know me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's all you need. In other words, the only directions you need for your life is to know me personally. Me personally. We know the way. We know the way to salvation. It's Jesus Christ. We know the way to obedience. Christ is the way. We will arrive at the place promised. Why? Because He's the way. Because He's coming for us again. He said, I will come. The promise is true. He's coming. The only detailed instructions we need is that we repent and believe and obey. Jesus is calming their fears. He's calming their fears. He's dealing with their doubts. Dealing with the worry those who are with him on the night before he dies. Their faith is going to be tested in ways they would never have imagined. But they could, by the power of the Spirit, as Jesus is now renewing their mind in truth, they could remain steadfast in that faith. If, if they would simply lay aside the old self lay aside its desires to be troubled, and put into action steadfast faith by trusting in the deity of Christ, trusting in the promise of Christ, trusting in the integrity of Christ, trusting in the directions of Christ.
In essence, Jesus is just simply saying, trust in me. Just trust in me. You don't need detailed instructions. You don't need all the facts. I'm the way to the Father. I'm all the truth you need. I'm the life in whom is life. That's all you need. What a comfort this ought to be. What a comfort it was to them. What a comfort it ought to be to us. In just a few chapters, Jesus is going to pray. And He's going to pray for us. Just as much as He's praying for those who are with Him there, He's praying for us. In John 17 and verse 14, He says, I have given them Your Word. Praying to the Father. And the world hated them because they're not of the world, even though, or even as I am not of the world. And I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So sanctify them. Make them holy, Father. How? In the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That's you and me. Jesus is praying for you. I think the greatest comfort of all is to know that reality. That while Jesus is God, that His promises are as true as His personhood, that because He's God, His integrity is as solid as anything it could ever be and His directions are true, what comforts me most is knowing that Jesus is praying for me. Think of the words Jesus said to Peter when He said, Satan has sought to, wants to sift you, Peter. But I'm praying for you. But after you go through that, you'll be strong. Wow. What was lost in Adam is gained in Christ. No greater comfort, no greater strength to us than that. When we trust Him as God, we trust His promises are true, we trust His faithfulness, His integrity of life, that His directions are the only way. When we exercise that faith in the midst of testing, our hearts are going to remain steadfast. All the trouble is going to be difficult, certainly. But we'll remain steadfast in faith, never doubting who our God is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for our time tonight. Just this, even this short time in your word, we thank you for how it's really been a day of challenging us to walk in obedience of faith, to trust in who you are and to be encouraged that you are indeed steadfast, never failing, always true, completely one who will fulfill everything you ever said. 
And so, Lord, even when we go through difficulties, may we, may we hang on those very words. Bring them to mind. Bring them to mind and help us, by the power of your Spirit, to walk in steadfast faith. Thank you for loving us in that way. In Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.